Hi folks, Emergency Trauma Mama here, and welcome back for another podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today, and just going to go through the quick disclaimer, and then we'll move on with the show. So, this podcast is not used in any way, shape, or form for a nurse-to-patient relationship, and it should not be used in that capacity whatsoever. And it's not being used as a standard of care. So from a legal sense or basis from uh, expert testimony, just know that this podcast is used just for learning and just for teaching and gathering information amongst all of us as medical personnel. So um, anything that I say is just a statement or opinion, and it's just made on the podcast for learning experiences only. So thank you so much, and let's move on with what we're talking about today is pediatric burns. So when you hear the word burns, typically what we're usually hearing in most forums is adult, and When you think about fluid resuscitation and Parkland formula, all of those things kind of fall by the wayside. I think we kind of forget about it until we have to see it in the trauma room. And then it's like, oh, what did they say in ATLS or TNCC? So I thought this would be a pretty good subject matter because it is one. Number one, it varies a lot where you work. So what population are you seeing? Are you seeing a lot of adults? Are you seeing a lot of kids? Because burn patients, as we know, can come in any season. And that's kind of where we're going now with fall and winter. People tend to use uh, kerosene heaters or things in their homes. Perhaps that, you know, they can't afford to pay for their heating bills. So we are getting into the season now where we may be seeing um, more types of burns. But, you know, typically trauma, you can see burns anywhere um, at any time. So I do feel like it's something we don't talk about enough. Um, a lot of places I know that I've even worked in, um, if you're a level two or level three trauma center, you are basically doing your A, B, C, D, E and shipping them to a burn center, which is fine because that's what we're basically going to be covering today is what what should we be doing for that initial stabilization before we transfer them to the burn center. So regardless, don't tune out just because you're not working in a burn center. This is more about fluid resuscitation and what to do for those types of patients. So now we're going to have a patient come in to us who is a nine-year-old male and we're going to go ahead and say, we'll talk a little bit about rule of nines, but I'm going to give you the TBSA. So that's going to be around 50% for this patient. And this little this little kid actually has second and third degree burns. So it's two bilateral upper extremities and bilateral lower extremities and AP. So anterior, posterior, torso, neck, face. Uh, that's what you're getting, and it says that um, actually your your medics had a little bit of time um, from the house fire to your facility, so they actually were able to tube this kid. So this child was um, pouring gasoline into a go-kart, and the fumes ignited. Um, so he was, like I say, he was intubated and sedated en route, which is very lucky because sometimes you get a BLS unit, um, 
depending on where you live and maybe they can only do you know supportive airway stuff until they get to the trauma trauma room so this kid's intubated and sedated upon arrival and um now you're going to get the child and so what are you going to do um obviously your ABCs, right? So your initial burn airway management. So this kid obviously is already intubated, but let's talk about if he was not, because I think that's the case more often than not, is you're getting a kid who perhaps they're just around the corner, it was a super bad house fire, and perhaps there might have even been a fatality. So there's all the rescue and extrication and everything that has to happen on scene with the firefighters before the paramedics can even get the patient. So those are typically more than likely the patients that we're getting. So obviously, when you see singed nasal hairs or carbonaceous sputum, that if they are able to even cough and have a gag reflex, so if they're coughing up black stuff, we know that's bad. Singed nasal hairs, we know that's horrible. Um, singed eyebrows. And all of that's telling us, hey, you know what? This person has inhaled everything that's burning in a house fire. So when you think about what degree of centigrade of things that are burning in a house fire and things that are actually burning. So let's just kind of talk about that. So curtains, um, couches, furniture, um, wood that maybe has lacquer on it. So when you think about those chemicals and those things that, you know, wood has lacquer on it and then you, it ignites. So then you're inhaling those chemicals that are actually burning. So when you think about it from that perspective, I think Oh my goodness, you know, you have singed nasal hairs, singed eyebrows. To me, um, I'm going right straight to RSI because I'm thinking about if if this is what I'm seeing externally, internally. So if we do a bronchoscopy on this patient, when you go down and look into the airway, what does their airway look like as a result of the house fire and of the things that they have inhaled? So inhalation injuries, we have to think about them. And those are your big red flags, obviously, right? So then you would just go straight to your RSI and intubate the patient, right? Because they may be awake and alert and talking to you. However, you know, in as time goes on, what's going to happen to their airway? Well, it's going to shrink, 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 shrink. And let's just say for whatever reason, okay, you called uh, medevac, you're going to get them out. However, by the time the medevac arrives and, you know, they're still talking to you now, all of a sudden they become more sleepy or obtunded. And now you're panicking to get an airway because you know that things are going south and your patient is deteriorating. And that is not the time to be thinking about an airway because what's going to happen? All that swelling and edema. Um, all that trauma, all that charred tissue um, that's deep down that you can't see because patients don't typically get bronched upon arrival to the trauma room. Um, we we know that that's not the time to think about it because now all of that tissue has had time to respond to the to the trauma, to the inhalation injury, and you're not going to get a tube in that patient. So that is not the time to think about it. So the time to think about it is when they're awake, they're alert, they're talking, you see the red flags, the singed nasal hairs, the uh, singed eyebrows, um, 
that's the time to think about it. And, you know, just this patient's nine years old that we have. But if they're an adult, you can ask them too, um, you know, did you actually, um, you know, get knocked unconscious from a board or that type of thing too, because you have to think about additional injuries, not just what you're seeing. So inhalation injuries, did they have another additional trauma as they're trying to crawl out of the house? Did they jump from a second story window? Um, Now you've got musculoskeletal trauma, potential SCI. Um, Those are the questions you have to ask adults. But for this nine-year-old case study, we know that he just uh, inhaled um, some gasoline, which of course is horrible. So, um, actually having taken care of a kid similar to this one, um, they had a very good outcome because they did get intubated, sedated right away, um, and went off to the PICU and, and had really, really good pulmonologists. So, um, again, stop the burning, of course, with our primary survey, initial burn management, airway, breathing, circulation, disability, exposure environment. So get that airway secured. doesn't matter if they're awake and they're alert. GCS is 15. They're talky-talky. But you see those singed nasal hairs, singed eyebrows, or carbonaceous sputum, or anything else that raises the hairs on the back of your neck as terms of airway, then go ahead and just perform RSI and get that patient tubed right away. Because we know as a burn patient, they're going to need aggressive um, pulmonary measures. They're going to need a really good pulmonologist. They're going to need ABGs. They're going to need probably a lot of PEEP. Um, We want to prevent ARDS. So all of those things kind of come into play um, a little bit later in the ICU. But you're thinking right now, long-term, what's best for the patient. Um, Of course, breathing, they may be breathing okay. But again, long-term, you have to think about compartment syndrome and escharotomy, especially if they've got a lot of burns to your chest. So this kid does have anterior and posterior torso burns. And thinking along the lines, what is he going to need in the PICU? So circulatory management, when we start thinking about Parkland formula, of course, we know two to four mLs per kilo of LR. We've, we've heard times of TBSA Uh, we've heard that over and over again in every course that we've ever taken. However, with kids, remember, it's different. With adults, it's different. With electrical burns, it's different. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. So for circulatory management, you want to have at least two large bores um, and start that fluid resuscitation. Why? Because we know from fact of the matter when we follow up on these burn patients afterwards that we typically under resuscitate them so imagine every regular just cardiac resuscitation or full rest that you do and if we were just under resuscitating every time that's a problem right well we tend to do the same with our burn patients so really be honing in when you get those burn patients is it an adult is it a child and is it a geriatric patient who has perhaps cardiac or renal um, issues? So, you know, you want to think about their ejection fraction and not fluid overload, but you still want to fluid resuscitate them. But um, I, I digress. So, and again, remember, since the skin is the primary defense against everything, uh, that includes microbes keeping us warm, hypothermia is of the utmost importance, right? Because they can't really thermoregulate. So making sure that you keep that patient warm, that you turn up the heat in the room, 
when you get to your E for exposure and environment as well. So remember, airway, 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 um, looking for upper um, airway, even if, if you're looking in their mouth and you're seeing soot, like just nasty black stuff, again, you're going to get into trouble later. So just go ahead and start thinking about RSI. Pull the trigger on that. Um, carbon monoxide injuries, we are always going to run that test um, to see what it is. But in the old days, they used to say, oh, does your patient have cherry red cheeks? Then that means that they have um, carbon monoxide poisoning. Well, those days are long gone, and that's like very small percentage of patients that actually have that. And... So we're just going to run the test, get the blood test, but we're assuming that that is carbon monoxide injury is something that occurs, right? Because remember, house fire, um, this kid actually inhaled gasoline, so um, probably not thinking carbon monoxide injury so much with him or her, but you want to think about it when they're in that closed environment and there's a fire burning so always look for carbon monoxide injuries and don't think cherry red because again that's not going to happen and so car carboxyhemoglobin we know um, their o2 sat's going to be a hundred percent no matter what um, that's just the nature of the game because carboxyhemoglobin it bonds right so much it has a 200 percent higher affinity um, for oxygen. So you're going to read 100%. That doesn't really mean you're 100%. <laughs> so go ahead and think about HBO. If you do have a patient that's in a house fire and you suspect that they have a high carbon monoxide uh, level, that's going to come back. Um, so go ahead, airway, airway, airway. And then of course we move on to listening to the breath sounds. So obviously if they sound, you know, rattly or that type of thing, you have to think about that as well. So um, if your patient isn't walkie-talkie and, you know, you hear crackles and that type of thing, perhaps they got knocked unconscious in the house fire. They were pulled out by the firefighters and maybe they had, um, they vomited and aspirated as well. So you want to think about that. So make sure you are taking a, lis a listen to those breath sounds. Um, again, if they have a chest wall, so this kid is nine years old. And he has anterior and posterior burns to his torso. So think about that restriction of ventilation, right? Though so this is an escherotomy type patient in the future, right? So we want to be thinking about that. Um, moving on to circulation. So you only have, let's say the medics were only able to start like a 24 in the hand, which serves its purpose. We're not criticizing that. We're glad you got a line. But you're going to go ahead and pop that IO in pop that central line in as soon as you can, right? Because we know that we're going to be giving massive quantities of LR, right? For our Parkland formula. And moving on um, to our disability, make sure you're checking those pupils, right? Because we can't just automatically assume. Now, this kid is an inhalation injury, right? So that's something that we know. But again, when you do have those patients that are in a house fire or that type of thing, we really don't know their state of mind before the house fire occurred. <clears throat> By that, they could have been smoking something or drinking something, and then accidentally they caught the house on fire. Um, I know from my experience, we've seen numerous um, meth labs explode. So there's other factors in play. So please do not forget to do your D 
for de neuro or disability and check that neuro deficit. Check the pupils. Um, make sure you're checking for everything because we don't know. Of course, we're getting a drug and tox screen that comes with a trauma panel. However, you don't even want to forget to rule out a head injury. Again, this person could have been crawling out of somewhere and then they got hit in the head with debris. So now they have an epidural hematoma and, you know, the right pupil is five and the left pupil is three, um, that type of thing. So because if they're already intubated, sedated and ventilated because you had to perform RSI, you're not going to get that AVPU, right? You're not going to get that normal GCS because they have paralytics on board. So make sure you're checking those pupils, right? And think about other mechanism injury. This kid's just straight up inhalation. However, with other patients, you need to be thinking about everything. And again, moving on to an exposure environmental control. I mentioned a little bit earlier, remember if this, this kid has 50% TBSA, quite significant, especially for a child. So is the child going to be able to thermoregulate very well? Hmm, probably not, right? So our fluids need to be warmed. We need to make sure that the temperature of the room is warm. I mean, to keep dry sheets and blankets and dressings and everything needs to be warm, right? I know it's so uncomfortable when you're in the trauma room and you're already amped up and you've got all your gear on and you're hot and you're sweaty and it doesn't matter. It's what's right for the patient, right? So crank that room temperature up. I know it's hot when it's 80 in there, but that's what we have to do. So make sure you're warming your fluids and doing everything in in terms of that. The other thing I just want to mention that we tend to forget, and I've seen it in clinical practice, is we forget what time the injury occurred. So let's say for this child, this child had the injury at 2030, but did not arrive to your facility until 2218. And vitals at that time, blood pressure 119 over 80, pulse 166, respirators, um, he was tubed, and he's setting 9900% because now he's vented. And temperature is 36.7, so a little chilly, huh? Um... Again, so what does that mean to you? Well, as a clinician, that means you need to calculate your fluids from the time of the injury, not from the time of arrival. And I find that we tend to forget that because we're so trauma-oriented. We're so geared in time. What time did the patient get here? And that's when we want to start our fluid replacement. However, we need to start it from the time of the injury, right? Because that's the time when the patient actually had the injury occur, not the time they come to us. Because again, 2030 to 2218, there's a gap, right? So just remember that, put that in the back of your brain because we need to calculate from the time of injury, not the time of arrival. So the um, child did have singed nasal hairs and eyebrows, and that's why the medics decided to intubate um, GCS was initially 15, strong peripheral and central pulses, pupils were pearl. Um, again, estimated TBSA is about 50%. And remember with the kids, it's a little bit different um, with your rule of nines calculation. And the beauty of that today is that you can just go on your phone and literally type in Parkland formula. And I want to say it's MD Calc that popped up right away for me. 
However, it was adult, not peds. <laughs> so if you're a pediatric nurse, make sure you're using a pediatric um, formula. So you just typed in the number of the person, whether it's, it didn't matter. You could change it if it was pounds or kilos, it will convert it for you. And then it just typed in TVSA, you, you put in your number and it, and it calculated it for you within the first eight hours and then the second eight hours and the total over 24 hours. So again, that was adult, that wasn't peds. Remember with pediatrics, the um, rule of nines is a little bit different. So um, the rest of this uh, scenario unfolding, you have now, um, you have that 24 gauge to the left hand, but you also have... Um, a 22 in the other AC, and now you've got an IO, and the PICU resident's going to put um, a central line in. You now have, um, you've got your ET tube down, six and a half. You've got your OG down. You've got your Foley in, right, because we're going to be measuring um, that for our fluid resuscitation. Very important. And like I said, um, your multiple temp checks, because now you've got the uh, bear hugger on the kid and you're warming the child up and you're going to be giving warm fluids. So initially the kid just got like 300 mLs of NS and then about 370 mLs an hour since it's been trickling in since the kid um, got the injury, give or take. Um, they Obviously you can use as much fentanyl as you need because the kid's intubated, sedated, and ventilated. But please don't forget to treat the pain. And remember, um, just think, just because they're on propofol doesn't mean they don't feel any pain. So um, so fluid resuscitations. Obviously, you know, you, you said that probably most of you will be transferring this kid out to a burn center. So when you're thinking about um, initiation criteria for um, transfer, it's usually greater than 10, 10% TBSA for kids and greater than 15 for um, adults. But some of you will transfer everything out regardless just because your facility doesn't do anything with burns, which is fine. Um, remember the fluid management. So again, we talked a little bit about this in the beginning. Um, so children less than 14 are three mLs LR times TBSA times kilo, and adults are usually around two. So when you see Parkland written in most books, um, it'll just say two to four mLs per kilo times TBSA times, and it's a little confusing. So remember, our adults are usually hovering around two, um, children less than 14 are three, electrical burns are four. Because remember, that's a different mechanism of an injury. So keeping that in mind, you do need to know the mechanism of injury. So if it's a gentleman that was working on the power lines and he sustained an electrical burn, he's going to need the 4 mLs of LR times TBSA times kilo. So just remember that there's different calculations depending on A, their population. So are they pediatrics, adult, or are they electrical? So remember, the key take-home point is give the half amount of fluids in the first eight hours of the injury, not time of arrival, and the remainder over the next 16 hours. And of course, you want to adjust to TV, or excuse me, to the, maintain their UO, your urinary outputs, which is why we put a Foley in our patient, right? So um, just to give you a little calculation to think about so that's so much fun 
Uh, 50% TBSA on this child. And we'll say they're 42-ish kilos times 3 equals around 63.75. They said 42.5 kilos, but whatever. 63.75 over 24 hours. So you're going to give half that in the first 8 hours. So that's about 31.87, um, about 400 mLs an hour. Again, this is post-injury, not from time of arrival. And then the second half in the the remaining 16 hours will be 3187. So that's the other half. So what you're looking at here, total volume, is 12,750 mLs over 24 hours. And just remember that that is what we're looking at. The biggest, biggest thing we can say, looking back at this kid, um, under resuscitation, under resuscitation, under resuscitation. And we do it a lot. And it's just not um, anything that we do intentionally because we always want to do the right thing for our patient. But we tend to under resuscitate burn patients. One, because I, I think we just don't get them as frequently as we get other types of trauma. So then we just aren't as good at it. Um, but just know that there are resources out there to help you. And and certainly what I find in my practice too is when the emergency department physician calls the burn transfer, sometimes who you talk to, doc to doc, they'll talk through actually the Parkland amongst themselves. And so if you've got a, a pretty good um, collaborative ED doc, he'll walk in the room and he'll say, hey, you know, I talked to Dr. Jones over at blah, 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 and and he um, walked me through what we should be resuscitating with. And then the doc will just walk through it with the trauma nurses and the nurses that are in the room um, taking care of the patient. Because really, that's what you should do. And then everyone should just kind of calculate it out and make sure it's right. Right? So we wouldn't just hang a heparin drip or something willy-nilly, right? Everybody checks it. And then you check it twice. So again, we under-resuscitate our burn patients, um, but there's a way to remedy that, remedy that and there's a way to do it better. And I think just practicing it, um, having those apps on your phone are great, but you still always need a second set of eyes. And you can talk it over with anyone who's taken the ABLS or um, American or excuse me, advanced burn life support too. So there are usually nurses, at least one, um, that have taken that course and they're usually your go-to for these types of patients. So again, total volume for this kid will be 12,750 mLs. And again, over-resuscitation is bad too, right? So let's say we accidentally miscalculate and give six mLs per kilo per times uh, percentage TBSA in the first 24 hours. Well, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to push that patient into ARDS. Um, we're going to push them into acute lung injuries, um, all kinds of compartment syndromes, right? Because now they're third spacing and trying to do what their body isn't able to do because they're missing a lot of components anyway. So they're going to try to shift the fluid. So make sure that you do do the correct calculation and that you check it twice. And again, hemodynamically, look at their urinary output. If they're putting out what they should be putting out, um, then you're good, right? I mean, that's the whole thing with fluid resuscitation. So when you look at urine output, if it's above the 0.5 mLs per kilo, um, 
per hour for your target, then you're doing good, right? So make sure that you're looking at all the picture, the pieces of the puzzle and putting them together. So don't just think, oh, okay, Molly's putting out urine, we're good. No, you need to calculate it out and make sure you're keeping an eye strictly on that INO because what we should be putting in should be coming out, correct? That's right. So just make sure a um, few take-home points. Um, of course, always be thinking about your airway breathing circulation disability first, of course, but don't underestimate or under-resuscitate your patient. So, and the other thing is pull that trigger on the RSI quickly. Um, if you see any of those red flags that we talked about, uh, facial, oral edema, obstruction, even if you say, can you open your mouth for me? And you look in there and they go, ah, and you see any little bit of laryngeal edema or anything in their mouth, usually suit. If you see black suit, that's another red flag. Really look in their nose and their nares. And um, of course, their decreased LOC is going to be the last thing. So altered uh, mental status is you're in a bad way right then. But any respiratory distress. So just any of those red flags, go ahead and pull the trigger and just intubate them because you know that's what's going to happen. The other thing I want to say, um, in this case study in particular, I did not see it, but get those gases early. Get the first set of gases. And if for whatever reason you're hanging on to them, let's say there's a delay in transport. Sometimes that happens with transfers. It might be weather related, whatever, what have you get that first set of gases and then when they've been on the vent for at least an hour you want to get a second set like you need to know where they are from a respiratory status so um if you need to adjust the fio2 or the peep or because remember these are injured lungs okay for an inhalation injury in particular um anybody who's got carbon monoxide poisoning your lungs are not working like they should right so the alveoli that are normally like nice and healthy and plump like like grapes if you will they're pretty much kind of like smashed and like shriveled and uh, potentially charred right because they've inhaled a bunch of chemicals which are bad right so your alveoli alveoli are not happy or healthy at all so they're already setting you know precedents you're already set up for going into arts so make sure if you need to add that PEEP or change the FiO2 or what have you, that you're doing it. And, and the time to, you're not going to know if you don't get the gases, right? Um, and make sure that you are estimating your rule of nines um, pretty close to what you feel like. If, if another person looks at it and you're both getting, you know, about the same number, then you're doing good. But just make sure that you're doing the rule of nines correctly because if you don't do the rule of nines correctly then you're not going to be able to calculate your Parkland formula correctly so make sure you do that as well and again last but not least just make sure um, if you do have an electrical injured patient that you're thinking about that cardiac conductivity for the heart as well so sometimes um, docs are pretty good about it I, I I, you know, you always think electricity, you know, that type of thing. Someone gets struck by lightning. Of course, we want to get an EKG. However, just be thinking, A, they need a higher um, resuscitation. Their formula is a little higher, right? That's at four. 
and monitor their extremities for compartment syndrome. Make sure you're still doing your A, B, C, D, E, but get those enzymes and check their heart out, right? Keep them on the monitor because chances are that electricity may have messed with their cardiac conduction system. So that's all for today. And I wish you all a good day, good morning, good afternoon, and good night. And thank you so much for tuning in. All right. Have a good one, everybody. Bye-bye.